Quick shout out from our sponsor, Sheer ID. Are you trying to boost conversions to your Shopify store? Need to drive more customer loyalty? Get results fast by offering exclusive discounts to consumer communities with Sheer ID. Sheer ID helps verify students, teachers, military, first responders, and so much more of these groups. With Share ID, you'll get a verified match in seconds. You can spit out an exclusive discount for customers on the spot. Try speaking directly to a new customer segment with this verifiable identity without adding friction to the shopping experience. Continue to drive incremental revenue in the next 90 days post-purchase with more tailored messaging for your email and SMS campaigns. I personally tested Share ID to see just how easy it was to get it set up, and I was pretty much ready to go in under 15 minutes. The onboarding was simple enough for me to follow as a non-technical person. Go to sheerid.com slash Shopify and start your free trial today. Once again, that's sheerid.com slash Shopify and start your free trial today. Hello and welcome to e-commerce uncovered. I'm your host, Matt Lady. Each and every week I get to talk with and learn from enthusiastic guests, freelancers, agency folks, in-house marketers, and founders, all in an effort to help you bootstrap your D2C brand profitably. We got two episodes a week, which will have you staying up to date on the ever-changing industry and learning fundamental concepts and tactics to apply to your brand. Enjoy the show. So, you know, it's you're not in the NBA bubble. Like you can't charge $20 for uh, an espresso. Um, and, and people aren't really going to put up with that for very long. So as you're changing prices within your assortment or, or introducing new products, new price points, that impacts your conversion rate and your ability to continue to sell to your retained customers. Okay. So we have the actual product and then that, that's step one. We have the price of that product and new products and how those might relate or not to each other and how that might change who your customer ends up being. Okay, what is step three? What's the next thing? So the last one is what I call the hot item problem. And this comes up more than you might think. And I think the best coffee shop analogy is the cronut. Like, are are you familiar with the cronut? No, it sounds familiar, but no, yeah. It's a croissant donut that was invented by this bakery in New York City. And people would line up around the block to eat this cronut. And I think they'd only make 500 a day. Um, and if you didn't get it, you know, you're out of luck for the day. Okay. So this the hot button item is the cronut. What, tell, tell me more about the cronut. It sounds tasty, but tell me more about it. So I've never actually eaten one, but the cronut the represents um, anything within either your assortment or your marketing strategy that becomes like a runaway hit beyond your wildest expectations. If you have a product that goes viral or becomes a bestseller or like a trend, you know, something that that starts to get a life of its own, that lowers your cost of acquisition. It, you know, it's free PR, it reduces friction because people aren't thinking about it logically. So it puts you in this really advantageous position. And you know, your sales could increase anywhere from like 
125% year over year to like doubling, tripling, et cetera. And it's, it's like, how do you manage that growth knowing that it's coming from a trend-driven source that will probably kind of fade out over time? Um, a lot of companies that I have worked with or worked within in the past, it, they assume that that growth is going, that, that A, they can just comp it year over year without doing anything, and then that B, that that trajectory will always continue. So it's kind of like the concept of being conscious of where your growth is coming from and what you have to do to, to comp it and more. Okay, so that all those make sense individually. So now let's start piecing them back together for our e-commerce brands here, the people that are listening. We're, most of us aren't running those coffee shops, not yet. Those are, that's our daydream later on. I wanna open up a coffee shop and slow down and unwind. So we're not running coffee shops yet. We're running e-commerce brands. So let's, let's start piecing them together. What, what should brand owners know about product? Like, what do you wanna tell them more about your selection of products or how you change it? Is it in, is it the quantity? Is it the variance? Like let's, let's start like exploring a little bit more, um, for everyone. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the most important or foundational concept or like the most bang for your buck you can get is the idea of product channel fit. Um, so if you manage uh, you know, if you manage paid social or if you manage email, you may start to realize over time that there are certain things that are just easier to sell. Um, you hear it a lot from agencies, like, you know, our, our cosmetics business for Gen Z is on fire on TikTok. Um, and it's because obviously like there are, the channels themselves have different audiences. Like Facebook, we know skews older. Instagram is like where you go for your aesthetic stuff. TikTok is or was for a while younger. So that's that impacts like who's in the channel, what they like, uh, what price points they're more willing to buy. And so if you have a, a broad assortment or you feel like your customer base is relatively broad, you can start to see these patterns where, like I'll give you an example, um, at a prior, in a prior role, we, it was like a contemporary fashion label. I knew that on, within Facebook, Instagram advertising, we could always sell like brightly colored or print pattern type, you know, dresses and tops, as long as they were priced between 200 and like $450. So what we would do is at the beginning of the season, you would look through the assortment and say like, okay, I can predict that these 20 things are going to sell really well in Facebook. So like, let's make sure that we, that A, that we shoot them at all uh, for our lookbooks and B, that we try to get this type of creative. And so you, that, that just, it improves the efficiency of your advertising um, and, and makes your cost of acquisition go down. Okay, awesome. So, and it's, I think it's important for me to uh, note and clarify for myself, but others perhaps, is that, that those 20 items that you picked and picked new that would work on Facebook and Instagram are, you're saying, is probably not the same 20 that work on TikTok or 
uh, YouTube or these other channels. Is that right? You're saying like you have to acknowledge product channel fit, not product market fit necessarily at certain points, right? Right. I mean, you can think about different advertising channels in two ways. It's like if you're really like sharpshooting, trying to do customer acquisition, hit the lowest CAC you can, that's one part of your strategy. You put the product you know will work in the channel, in the channel. There's also the idea of just like building awareness or trying to to build an appetite for something new that you think could be successful in the future. You can run those things in channels where they're maybe less of a fit, not a complete misfit, um, but know that you have to set your expectations differently. Um, and that's where the stuff really starts to come into play for marketers because decisions that merchandising make uh, it has a lot of impact on your ability to hit your goals. So it's all about like predicting how the decisions will impact you and then communicating that ahead of time. So it's not like surprise, you know, we can't hit our, our numbers today. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, that's super interesting. And something that <laughs> is, is talked about is discussed, but probably wasn't as clear as that. So, uh, I really enjoyed that part of it. And so moving on now from product a little bit onto pricing. So we have the products, we have the channels. Um, like how can uh, either media buyers and agency service providers or uh, brand owners and operators, like how can they better work together uh, on pricing? Is it something that should one or the other should own? Is it a collaborative effort? Is it 60-30 uh, or 60-40, I guess? Uh, tell me a little bit more about pricing um, when it comes to this. Yeah, I mean, I always call product and pricing the, the forgotten P's of marketing, of the four P's. And I think in an ideal world, those decisions would be more of a collaborative process between marketers, be they in-house or agency, and whoever else is, is kind of managing those decisions. But it's a little tricky because there are, obviously like there are financial impacts tied to those decisions. So it's it, the first step in the process is kind of like making sure that all of the parties understand almost how like the, the P&L or the unit economics of the business are structured, which could be a big ask in a complex business, like don't get me wrong. Um, but where pricing really comes in is, uh, it's in your ability, it, it's basically like, how easy is it going to be to sell to your retained customer base? Like you, your first order that a, a customer makes gives you a lot of information on what they like and what they're willing to pay for it. And that doesn't really, <clears throat> that doesn't really change dramatically over time at scale. So you can think of each order as kind of like a, a, a tick, ticking the box. Like you have this audience of people who are willing to pay $20 for your product, willing to pay 40, willing to pay hundred. And as you're releasing new products or running new offers, you know, if they don't, if they don't fit into those buckets, those people aren't going to buy. So it makes your retained base either 
easier or harder to sell to. So then as you're making forward-looking decisions and kind of changing things around, you have to view it in the context of like, is this something that will appeal to my base or is it something that's going to require a lot of customer acquisition, <clears throat> customer acquisition to drive adoption of? Hey there, just wanted to take a quick second to shout out my other show, Brand Builders. Twice a week, myself, Tom Brown, and Richie have conversations, brainstorms, thinking out loud, reactions to latest news, posts, updates, share stories and insights from the ups, the downs, and all the way arounds in building our brands, our careers in e-commerce. We, we, try to we try to keep it light, and but try to provide value, try to be real, and try to provide some mildly funny and spicy takes. So that show, once again, is Brand Builders. That's on Spotify, Apple, and on the Heike Geek YouTube channel. Once again, go check out Brand Builders. Ah, uh, okay. No, that, okay, that makes, that makes a lot of sense, but I want to make sure that I'm understanding you. So... If my if my coffee and it's uh, a pound of coffee now, I'm selling e-commerce. My my coffee shop went D to C, and my my pound of coffee is thirty thirty dollars, and I all of a sudden introduce a ten pound bag for a hundred twenty five dollars. That that's very different from thirty dollars, right? Like, are are you saying that based on your initial products and pricing decisions and the customer's uh, response with their wallet and with their credit card, um, with shop pay and a firm and all this stuff uh, now too. But are you saying that you, when looking at new products to bring on, you should consider, and it's not yes or no, it's not right or wrong, right? It's if you're going to add a product that's similar priced, you may have less friction and be able to acquire customers at a similar or more predictable rate. Is that right? Versus this new big $125 10 pound bag of coffee, which I don't even know if they make, but like, that's a whole different, like audience segment, right? That's a whole different person, right? Yeah. Well, I think your example is really interesting because to me, it's not, that's not a cut and dry case where I could say, you know, it, it feels like the 10 pound bag isn't going to go over well um, because it's if people like the one pound bag, they might want a 10 pound bag, but it's like, well, what would they be willing to pay for it? And that's where um, you can start. I mean, that honestly, that's where developing processes to kind of speak regularly with your customers or survey your customers are really important. Um, because you can start kind of floating some of these ideas by your own customer base before you go out and decide to like buy a thousand 10 pound bags of coffee. <laughs> right, right, right. So using, um, talking to them, listening, surveys, um, just trying to get on uh, calls even with some of the your more loyal customers, just getting initial data points before making that big investment and it's like, oh, it's still coffee, but it's also way more and it's way different supplies that you need uh, to like, you know, the bags and all that. So that actually impacts a lot more than one may think on the surface. So, okay. 
so it's not as cut and dry as I tried to make it out to be, which is good. I don't like being right all the time. I like. Well, there there are some cut and dry cases, but that one was a, a more nuanced one. I mean, I, I think where I've really seen this a lot is like a lot of my career experiences in fashion, which is the the product assortment turns over relatively quickly, and there isn't a lot of evergreen product. So. Um, you have some organizations within fashion that are more more balanced between, I guess, business interests and creative, where they'll try to develop that evergreen, evergreen strategy. And then you'll have others where it's like, well, I, I'm bored of everything we've done in the past and this is what we're doing now because it interests me. And, but I also want us to grow 20% year over year and rely heavily on our retained base. So that's kind of an extreme example, but it's like those are the scenarios where as a marketer, it's helpful to bring some of these concepts into your, your strategy. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, okay. That, that, that one is uh, definitely makes more sense um, and could be adopted more. Okay. So we got the product, we got the price, and now this hot ticket, this hot button item, the, the Corona. <laughs> so I... Should we <laughs> hot take time? <laughs> no best practices time. Like perfect question. Do you think most brands should or should not try to find a Corona? So I think I think you should. Well, I think that a Corona is good whether you try to manufacture a Corona or whether you stumble upon it. I think trying too hard to make a Corona can backfire unless you really know what you're doing. But um, it's it's like getting a landing a product like that. It's it just like greases up your P and L and and everything becomes more profitable. But you just have to make smart decisions about like what you do with the money. You have to think about it as I won the lottery, not I. Uh, I don't know. I inherited a thousand shares of a dividend stock that's doing really well. Right. It's it's uh it's less long term and less um, predictable forever. It's a little more. It might help a lot more in the short term, but if you mismanage after that point of discovering the cronut, uh, then you might end up in a worse spot later on. Okay. Okay, cool. Okay, I love how you answered that because I think that's <laughs> that sounds a lot. <laughs> that sounds like your kind of answer instead of like saying making making you pick yes or no. You're like, well, actually, Matt, I'm gonna I'm gonna switch it around on you a little bit, but that's actually better. Okay, I am a knowing all this about coffee and cronuts and pricing. If you were advising someone on just someone who's like, I really want to like build a brand on my own. I want to start something, uh, but I don't know what, and I'm, I'm just open. I'm kind of open, um, to hearing ideas. And this is like a friend of yours. So you're like honest with them. There's no like incentive for you to like tell them anything besides trying to help them. <laughs> what is some other pieces of advice for brand new people to e-commerce, uh, to starting their own brand and getting into products and merchandising. Uh, what are some additional like 
must do's or must don'ts or <laughs> I have to catch myself because literally it's called no best practices. So I'm like, I'm kind of forcing, I'm forcing you to like say best practices, but um, like if your friend was, and you can ask me more questions if you want more clarity about like my brand I'm starting. So that might help clarify the, these best practices. Yeah. Well, I would, I'll, I'll ask you some questions, but I'd say the answer there, I think the answer or the type of entrepreneur, the person who, who has this kind of question, it typically falls into two buckets. It's they, either they, they have an idea of something they want to build because it solves a pain point or it's something that they're really excited about or they have no idea whatsoever and they're like i kind of you know like maybe i'm a media buyer and i want to start my own brand or i have experience in the industry i want to sell something but i don't know what to sell so for the the first group the person who has the product idea um i would say definitely study the market because it does give you a it gives you some information on what people value, what they're willing to pay. Um, try to find communities of people who would be interested in the product and like eavesdrop on them. Like if they're, if you're, I don't know, think of a crazy idea. You're passionate about beekeeping and you want to invent a beekeeper suit for hobbyists and disrupt the beekeeping industry. I hope someone takes that idea. I don't even know if it's good, but like you, you go to the beekeeping Reddit and you like, lurk on on what people are complaining about do do research to validate your idea and make sure it's it makes sense before you start trying to sell it and then before you like file trademarks or do anything that involves sunk costs um try to get into one of those communities in a low-cost way and, and like sell prototypes and see how people respond to it. Um, like before you, before you buy a thousand, make 10 at home and try to sell them to people and like start to get that feedback loop. Um, so that, that's my advice for the product driven person. My advice for the, I want to start a business person is, is similar, but different. Um, it's study the channel that you think you're going to use to do your acquisition. And based on what seems to be happening there and what seems to be selling, come up with five ideas, um, make 10 units of each idea, and then come up like over the weekend, mock up a fake brand around it or like a minimum viable brand and invest a hundred, uh, invest 500 or a thousand dollars in ads and like, see if you can sell it and then pick the one that seems to have the best economics behind it. A quick reminder from our sponsor, ShareID. Find your next lifetime customers by providing verified discount codes based on occupation or life stage. Speak directly to veterans, students, teachers, first responders, and continue to tailor your messaging to them in the future with post-purchase emails and text messages. Make them feel seen with your brand by using ShareID to seamlessly verify their email in seconds during the purchase process. Go to shareid.com slash Shopify and start your free trial today. Wow. Awesome. Yes. Truly no best practices, uh, especially with that answer. Okay. 
So basically, if you have a product idea, cool, that's fine. That's that's great, but that's not required. There's still other ways to go about starting up your brand. And uh, validate, study the market, actually try to get people to buy it before you go further. Uh, that's honestly something I goofed on with these like graphic t-shirts for uh the e-commerce community i was like oh this is cool i love these these are awesome they're so comfy and then people are like why do i want this what (laughs) why do i need it so uh i learned my lesson uh hands off well i actually really like it i would have i would have bought that shirt um because it's kind of like the john belushi like college shirt but it says e-commerce on it (laughs) yeah yeah so and it's coming back, uh, and like there's other reasons why it didn't work um, the, at last year. So I, I know firsthand about talking to people, getting small buy-in. I kind of just went ahead and like bought a bunch, and like, all right, people want it. Uh, didn't always go that way, so good to know. Okay. <laughs> um, so I'm no longer an early stage founder. Say I took your advice two years ago. I'm like cruising now um i got my brain off the ground my beekeeping suit is popping off and we're at two million in revenue in two years and (laughs) yeah like impressive (laughs) so now you're advising me again i want to make a new product what things and variables and factors research data points metrics whatever what would help you (laughs) determine how to advise me on like the next step of product either expansion or variation so i think it's always good to at least start with some ideas or hypotheses and in as long as those hypotheses are kind of like logic driven you're not going from beekeeper suit to surfboards or something you're you're like okay i'm I think I know that my customer is a beekeeping hobbyist. I'm a beekeeping hobbyist. These are like other things I use that maybe are tools that could potentially be improved or like things tangential to beekeeping. Um, And that's where the the creative process really starts to play into it because you're like, well, maybe I get stung a lot. And instead of doing, uh, you know, beekeeping gloves, maybe I can do like a bee sting bomb or like you start to kind of splinter off in some of these interesting directions. So when you have some concepts like that, um, then you, you kind of want to return to your customer base and try to validate the ideas a little bit, like get an understanding. Do these people share your interests or your pain points? Like if they do, how much would they be willing to pay for something like that? And you can also return to kind of like lurking the market if you want to draw a larger sample, because whenever you survey your own customers, especially if you're like sending out an email survey, the people who answer are always going to be your your most engaged, loyal people. So if you're at 2 million, I think that's actually fine. Like selling to your core and surveying your core is fine. If you're bigger, then it's going to bias your answers maybe in the wrong direction. Um, Yeah. So gathering the data, validating your ideas, seeing if you can actually make the thing for the price that you want to and thinking through all of those, like, will I be able to sell this in the acquisition channels I'm already using? Like all all of those questions. 
um, and then then going for it, but in a small measured way. Okay, so not too much different from two years ago. It's very similar of like research, ask, validate, start small, and then iterate, right? Like that's uh, from early to middle or however we want to define middle stage. Um, pretty similar advice. Okay. Um, what, <laughs> anything you want to add onto that before I, I move on to the next thing? I guess uh, what I will say is some people don't have to do it that way because they are, they're almost, almost the way like an artist makes painting a masterpiece look easy. It's like some people are so good at the discipline of merchandising. Like Mickey Drexler for a while was one of these people where it's like he's doing, he's subconsciously absorbing all the information and like synthesizing it. And so he can come up with an off the cuff idea that seems like it's like, well, this is just what I like, but it's actually the product of all of this synthesis that is, you know, he's collecting. There's some people who can do that and, and it works better in some categories than others, but it's like, if you're an entrepreneur and you're bootstrapped and it's your money, it's probably better to take the more structured approach to start. Yes. Okay. That's a great point. And it's more on the operator to determine their uh, level of risk acceptance or aversion. And like, hey, I really like this. I'm betting on myself. I'm going to go with it anyway. You can do that, but uh, for many bootstrap merchants, maybe small and iterate and then grow from there. Okay. So what are some of the like best and worst merchandising, merchandising decisions? Uh, not that you've made necessarily, that you have been involved and been around of or have seen in the industry over the years. Just some of the top, like, really good, really bad, like, or controversial things. I want to get some a couple more examples in here. Okay, so I'm I'm going to disappoint you again by saying that what I'm about to describe is basically a decision is only bad if you don't plan for the likely outcome. Like if you make a decision um, and understand what's likely to happen and you make it with eyes open, it's not bad. But something that I have seen multiple times is um, it, it's this idea that repositioning a brand is a growth strategy, which is not true. Um, you Brands like that are owned by LVMH and Caring can make it look like a growth strategy until you read their financial documents and you see how much money they invest in marketing to, to make these repositionings pay off. But I've been in at least two situations where the, the decision that comes from merchandising or product is like, let's take this brand in a new direction or a more youthful direction. And the byproduct of that is we're going to discontinue a lot of styles or fabrics or fits that have been popular in the past. And the new product we're putting out, it's like not necessarily going to appeal to our retained audience. And by the way, we don't fully understand how acquisition and retention are at play in our customer files. So 
we're a business that really depends on retained customers, but we're going to like make decisions that are going to nuke our customer file essentially. And we're also going to plan to grow 10 to 20% year over year because the, remember, this is a growth strategy. Like now we're going after Gen Z or millennials and like, they're not going to be able to keep their hands off this stuff. So it, it never plays out that way because typically it's like, the, when those decisions are made, um, you don't under, there's not the understanding of what it will do to the retained customer base and the marketing spend to do the acquisition to make up the gap. Like it just isn't there. Okay. Got it. So while you're trying to expand and reposition and capture a new or different customer segment with new product, that is a larger investment and bet right it's uh it's not just uh it's not just the new product cost it's like you said potentially removing or uh discontinuing the old product so you might not only lose your current revenue but you also might not be able to gain as much right is that kind of what you're getting at or how i kind of okay cool yeah and repositioning is honestly like sometimes necessary like it's the classic business it's the classic conundrum of business like i'm a cable company and no one's appointment viewing anything anymore and everyone's cord cutting so like but all my money is coming from cable so like what do i do well the answer isn't to just stop selling cable it's like you, you have to do both at the same time and, and in order to sur survive and pivot and make that change, that can take a lot of time, that can take a lot of capital, that might be new talent or new roles that you cur don't currently have. If you're selling cable and you need to get into connected TV, all of a sudden, uh, might be a little different <laughs> skill set and t talent you need. So uh, a lot more costs potentially associated. So I think that's a good example. So... Uh, yeah, Alex, I wanted to start wrapping up. So I wanted to start. Um, <laughs> this is awesome so far. This is amazing. Uh, what? <laughs> yeah, what What do you want to tell the people? <laughs> all however many people are listening right now. Like what's what's the last one or two things that you want to let, get them thinking about, get them to consider or questions to ask themselves when it comes to merchandising as and again, maybe for context, we're coming into holiday season. Is merchandising different during Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and Christmas? Like, is it, would you give different advice? Uh, let's leave with a, a tip or two for people to ponder. Yeah, I, I mean, if we want to talk specifically about holiday sh shopping season, like I think, I guess my, my broad advice for any scenario, the closest thing that I can come to a, a best practice is you, whether it's customers or channels or products, it always, it, it's always beneficial to understand not just the impact on your business today, but like who are the people that are coming in through those products or those channels and are they, is their behavior, does it align with where you want the business to go in the future? Like whether you view your business as something you're trying to flip in five years or 
something you're trying to pass down to your grandchildren. It's like there always needs to be a narrative behind what you're doing. So you understanding product decisions, marketing decisions, the customers, like does it align with your narrative? Thinking about that specific to holiday, um, a lot of brands do the bulk of their customer acquisition during the holiday period. And it's partially because, you know, consumer behavior wise, people are just more willing to shop at that time. Um, and partially because I think maybe five years ago, like costs were just lower, although that's not really true anymore. Um, so you have all these holiday customers and like time and time again, what I've seen is when you analyze lifetime value of customers acquired by month or in different periods, controlling for other factors, the customers that you acquire in holiday are just like less likely to come back and less, if they do come back, not, you know, not spend as much or not be as profitable. So my, my, my thought on holiday is it's, it, it's a very, it's become very hyped, very high stakes. Think about if that's where you really want to be doing all of your customer acquisition. And, and maybe what I just said doesn't apply to your business and your holiday customers are your best, but like really analyze that. And if that's true, start to back away from it and think about other periods during the year, other things you can do to drive spikes in acquisition. Cool. So yeah, so maybe less, oh, let's just do a big sale and like get clear inventory and get cash back. Um, maybe it's we're sitting out, uh, some brands started to do that sort of thing. And it's for like moral, social, environmental, whatever the reason for these brands, some are sitting out, some brands, uh, really lean into their like birthday or like create, they try to create their own holiday to create that hype. Uh, so those are some other ideas besides just 40% off <laughs> on black Friday, uh, before you just jump right into that. So, okay, that was a great way to end and a great way to wrap because it is getting quite near holiday and start thinking and planning ahead. Alex, if what do you want to point people to if they want to learn more, they want to talk to you, they want to ask questions, they want to read your awesome newsletter, where do you want to point them to? Um, so I have a website, it's called nobestpractices.co.co um, and I, I you can sign up for my newsletter there. There's a link in the footer. Um, newsletter only goes out twice a month, so I won't bomb your inbox. Um, and I'm also on Twitter at Hey It's Alex P, not G, because after I got married, Hey It's Alex G was already taken, so I never changed my Twitter handle. <laughs> but, um, always open for a conversation on Twitter. <laughs> hey It's Alex P and nobestpractices.co. Those links will be in the show notes and in the social posts when this episode goes live. Alex, thanks again for your time. Really appreciate it. And everyone else have an awesome day. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I love being able to do this, continue to learn and meet people in this industry. Every rating, review, and episode you share with a friend means so much to me as I'm bootstrapping this show as part of my media brand, High Key Geek. If you haven't checked out my other show, Brand Builders, you should. It's with myself and Tom Brown and Richie Mashiko. Two times a week, we talk in a much more casual setting, and we think out loud, we brainstorm, and we share our lessons as we continue to operate and run businesses 
in the DTC space today. We're not, we didn't exit. We didn't just consult and advise now. And we don't, we're in the trenches as we, like every day still. So we're learning in real time and sharing it with you as we go. That's brand builders on High Key Geek YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you find your podcasts. Catch you next time.